Well, good evening, everyone, and welcome to Upbeat Live. My name is Christopher Russell, and it's a pleasure to be here. And thank you for coming out on this Thursday night. Thank you, as always, to the LA Phil for inviting me to do these talks. It's a great pleasure for me. Well, on tonight's program, we have our beloved conductor emeritus, Zubin Mehta, on the podium. This year, he actually celebrates the 60th anniversary of becoming music director of the LA Phil back in 1962, and uh, it's always wonderful when he's on the podium. And he brings with us two works from Austria. We have Berg's Violin Concerto with the Norwegian violinist Vilde Frong as soloist, and then after intermission will be Bruckner's Ninth Symphony. Both of these works are last pieces of the two composers. In Berg's case, it was his last completed piece, and at the end of his life, he had just his opera Lulu that was unfinished. In Bruckner's case, it was his last work. He actually died before he was able to finish it. So I'll just take the pieces in the order that you're going to hear them tonight. So that begins with Berg's Violin Concerto. It was commissioned in the spring of 1935 by the then 34-year-old Ukrainian-born violinist Louis Krasner. He did, though, spend most of his life here in the U.S. He moved here with his parents when he was just five years old. He developed a reputation early on as being a champion of new music. And aside from Berg's Violin Concerto, he also premiered Schoenberg's Violin Concerto and many other new pieces. Then the second part of his career was as a concertmaster. And he was concertmaster of the Minneapolis Symphony, which is now the Minnesota Orchestra. And then the final part of his career was teaching at his alma mater, the New England Conservatory. And he died in 1995 at the age of 91. Actually, an interesting side note with Krasner is that he owned one of only five surviving Stradivarius guitars. He bought it when he was in London in the 1930s, and he kept it until the 1980s. He sold it to the National Music Museum in South Dakota, and he sold it to them for $165,000, which is about $435,000 today. So knowing that Stradivarius violins go for the millions, I'd say the museum actually made a pretty good investment with buying this guitar. So Baird completed the violin concerto in only about four months. He finished it in August of 1935, and upon its completion, he told Krasner, I'm probably more surprised by it than you will be. Your work gave, the work gave me more and more joy. The piece bears the subtitle to the memory of an angel, and the angel in this case refers to Manon Gropius. She was the daughter of Alma Mahler, who was Gustav Mahler's widow, and the architect, Walter Gropius, who was one of the founders of the Bauhaus School of Design. Gropius and Alma Mahler were actually married for only about five years, from 1915 to 1920. They divorced when Manon was only four years old. Manon's life was sadly cut short when she was 18 and she contracted polio and died in April of 1935. Berg was heartbroken by her death. And seeing as it came pretty much at the same time that he received the commission for the violin concerto, he decided to write this concerto in her memory. And tragically, Berg himself died only a few months after completing the violin concerto, and that was on Christmas Eve, 1935. He contracted blood poisoning from an insect bite, and he was only 50 years old when he passed away. 
The premiere of it took place in April of the following year. Krasner was, of course, the soloist. The original conductor was supposed to be Berg's friend and fellow second Viennese school composer, Anton Webern. Webern likely wanting to do justice to his late friend's work, could not get the orchestra to play up to the level that he wanted them to, and he had to bow out of the performance. There's a great violinist, Felix Gallimere, who was there, and he said this about what happened. The performance was in Barcelona and was quite an affair. Webern was supposed to conduct. He was a very good conductor, but he talked a lot, explaining the music in his Viennese dialect. Number one, the musicians couldn't understand him. Number two, they hated the music. When Webern saw this resistance, he broke down and cried. Finally, the day before the concert, he said he was not going to conduct. And Herman Scherken, who was incredible at this kind of thing, memorized the score in three hours and conducted the premiere of it. However, Webern and Krasner gave a successful performance of the concerto later on that year with the BBC Symphony in London. And there's actually a recording that exists of it. You can find it on YouTube. It's one of the few recordings that exist of Webern conducting. The concerto is in two large parts, and each part that itself has two parts, and it's symmetrical in design. The first part is slow and then fast, and then the second part is fast and then slow. The whole concerto lasts about 30 minutes or so. So with Berg and then his friend Webern and then their teacher, Alban, um, Arnold Schoenberg, the three of them are collectively known as a term I recently mentioned, the second Viennese school. This wasn't an actual school like building, but more was a school of thought. By the way, if you ever wonder what the first Viennese school was, it's Mozart, Haydn, and Beethoven. That term was coined just a few years after Beethoven died, but is uh, almost never used today. Part of the shared philosophy of the second Viennese school was to write music that had no key center. It's what we call atonality. And Schoenberg was the person who helped develop the system and then taught it to his students, most notably to Berg and Webern. One of the building blocks of a piece in atonality or in this 12-tone system is what we call a tone row. And in a tone row, you take the 12 available notes, which are basically a chromatic scale, and you reorder them. So for example, here is the row that Schoenberg used in his variations for orchestra. What this does is by putting notes in seemingly random, although not always random order, is that it takes away the dominance of one note for instance, in C major, C would be the dominant note. In the 12-tone system, all the notes are equally treated. When composers chose their tone rows, they were often very thoughtful about it and very careful about the exact order that they wanted the notes to come in. Now, let me play you the row that Bear uses in the violin concerto, and you'll hear a few things differently in it.
This role became famous in music history for a couple reasons. One, you heard, first of all, that it's completely ascending, which is an unusual feature of it. It doesn't have the normal um, kind of jaggedness that you get in some other tone rows. And then also what Webern does here is he has allusions to four different keys. First part of it, G minor. And then it's D major, and then A minor, and then finally E major. In 12-tone music, when you're supposed to destroy all semblance of key, this was almost verboten to do something like this. But Webern does indeed do that, and I'll talk a little bit more about his, uh, his use or hintings at tonality. But also, these four keys that he hints at, G, D, A, and E, are equal to the four open strings of the violin. So if a violinist does not put down any notes, press down the string with their left hand, then the four notes that come out are G, D, A, and E. Those are the first four notes that the soloist plays in this concerto. The other unique thing about this row are the last four notes. B, C sharp, E flat, and F. This corresponds to a setting of a Lutheran hymn that Bach set, and I'll talk a little bit more about that when I get into the last part of the concerto. But now let's listen to the opening of this concerto, actually about a minute in. You're gonna hear the row that I played for you in its original form by the solo violinist. Shortly after that, the violinist plays another row, this time completely descending based upon that original row. Of the second Viennese school composers, Berg was the one who felt the strongest attachment to traditions of old uh, forms, old dances. You do hear those in his pieces. Simon Rattle said that Berg was a composer who liked to employ, quote, ancient echoes of the past. And that certainly is the case with this violin concerto. Not only do you get certain key centers that, that show up here. But at the beginning of the second part of the first movement of it, you hear these sort of ghostly reminiscences of old dances. So listen to this part. So remember, the first part is slow and fast. This is the beginning of the fast part.
One feature of this concerto is that the soloist plays almost continuously through the whole 30 minutes. The soloist comes in just a few seconds after the concerto begins and then ends just a few seconds before the concerto ends. It's really quite an emotional and technical tour de force for the soloist. The second large movement begins rather uh, stormily, again in a fast tempo. And here's an excerpt from about five minutes into the second movement. It's one of the climaxes of this part of it, and really one of the climaxes in terms of volume of the whole concerto. In this, listen also to how Berg uses the entire range of the violin from the lowest note, this G, way up into the highest register and sometimes putting them uh, back to back. The last part of the concerto begins shortly after this, and the last part begins with the quotation from Bach that Berg first put in the final notes of his tone row. So I'll play it first, and then, then I'll explain a little bit more about it, but listen when the violinist comes in on the, the Bach quotation. You'll hear that the atmosphere of the piece completely changes. So this is a quotation from a Lutheran hymn, and it's called Esses Genug, or It Is Enough. This is a moment clearly related to the death of Manon Gropius, and the text begins like this. It is enough, Lord, if it please thee, my Jesus come. World, good night. I go to the heavenly house with a heart full of joy. My sorrows remain below. The Bach quotation continues and expands a little bit. Here's an excerpt with the clarinets playing the Bach chorale, and the strings underneath are remembering back to the early part of the concerto, where you'll remember where the solo violin plays the four open strings. So here it's a bit of a twist because Berg in many of his pieces, he had these sort of remembrances of the past, but here the past is in the forefront and then in the background is kind of the current or the atonal feel of it.
And then the concerto builds to one last final climax, one last outpouring of grief and anguish. Shortly after this, the music quiets down and the first violin section play the four notes, the open strings, G, D, A, and E, that the violinist played at the beginning and then the work fades away. Now that brings you to intermission. And then after intermission, Maestro Meda and the LA Phil will play the second most famous unfinished symphony. And that's uh, Bruckner's Ninth Symphony. Berkner was able to complete three of the four movements at the time of his death in 1896. And looking at some of the things that were going on in Berkner's life at the time, it seemed like he actually could have completed this concerto. Berkner was a composer who really was racked with self-doubts. He was constantly revising his earlier pieces, or worse yet, he allowed other people to tamper with his pieces. And after Bruckner finished the Eighth Symphony, he began a period of revising several other works, including honestly needlessly revising several of his early symphonies. One extreme example is his Mass in F minor. After he completed it over the next 30 years, he made six revisions of the Mass, the last of which he was working on at the time that he was writing the Ninth Symphony. Another aspect that lent to Bruckner likely unable to finish this was his obsessive compulsive disorder, which unfortunately got worse as he got older. There are accounts of Bruckner on the street passing a building and then he had to count every window in that building before he felt comfortable with passing by. And other acquaintances said that sometimes Bruckner would, would stop at a tree and try and count all of the leaves on it. So this related a little bit to his music as well because he would go back to his earlier scores and write in measure numbers for every single measure. And if you know Bruckner symphonies, they're long symphonies. They're often over a thousand measures long and it was extremely time consuming to have to put in measured numbers for, for every, every single bar. And this took him away from writing original pieces. So these are some of the factors that seem to contribute to uh, Bruckner not finishing the ninth, aside from, of course, his, his health failing. He did start on a fourth movement. He wrote enough to tantalize music scholars into trying to complete it. There's actually about six completed versions of the fourth movement that are available to conductors. In fact, Simon Rattle and the Berlin Philharmonic recorded one a few years ago. But tonight you'll be hearing the original completed three movement version. This is of course the one that, that's most often played. And like Schubert's Unfinished Symphony, when you hear the Bruckner Ninth, it sounds complete. And perhaps that's partly because that's the, the version that we've been used to for a long time, but there is also evidence to show that Bruckner did revise the end of the third movement because he knew that he was not gonna live long enough to complete the last movement. 
Bruckner at one point suggested his choral orchestral work to Deum as being a possible fourth movement for it, but realized pretty quickly that that piece didn't really match the mood or even the, the basic harmonies of the, of the Ninth Symphony. But there have been performances of the Ninth Symphony with the Te Deum as the final movement. That Te Deum, though, does have a connection with the third movement, and when I get to the third movement, I'll, I'll dig a little more into that. So this suggestion of a choral ending to a Ninth Symphony, of course, has the precedent of, uh, in Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. This symphony does in, um, influence large in Bruckner's writing of his own uh, symphony. First of all, they're both in the same key. They're in the key of D minor. The beginning of Bruckner's Ninth is actually similar to the beginning of the Beethoven. So to refresh your memory, here's the beginning of Beethoven's Ninth. So you'll hear repeated notes in the strings, and then you'll hear a two-note figure that gets tossed around. Now here's the opening of Bruckner's Ninth Symphony. You'll hear a clear relationship here. There's strings playing fast, repeated notes, which we call tremolos. And then there's also a two-note figure that gets tossed around the orchestra. In the symphony, you'll hear how Bruckner was firmly rooted in symphonic traditions in the past, but also he broke new ground in several ways, and I'll take you through a few of those in the symphony. The opening is actually fairly typical of Bruckner's symphonies, that it starts with the strings on tremolo. And whenever a Bruckner symphony shows up on a program, the string players have to sort of mentally and physically prepare for it because Bruckner likes his tremolos and it can be very tiring to play tremolos over and over again, especially over a, a long uh, piece like a Bruckner symphony. The other way this is typical of a Brucknerian opening is that it slowly unfolds. Bruckner rarely began his pieces with full-throated announcements. In fact, of all of his symphonies, the ones numbers one through nine, and then the one that's actually called number zero, and then there's an early F minor symphony, all of those 11 symphonies begin softly. In this first movement of the ninth symphony, Bruckner takes about three minutes before he brings in the full forces of the orchestra. Here's that moment. those two examples, you pretty much get the mood of this first movement, and it has this uh, mysteriousness to it, but also this very dramatic sound to it. 
Normally in first movements of symphonies, when a composer presents an idea, then another idea will come in that's contrasting to what happens at the beginning. So while there's some moments of the first movement that are somewhat, I guess, pastoral, uh, you could say that element of mystery that Bruckner sets up at the beginning really does not stop for the entire movement. And here's a spot later on in the first half where there's a new idea that comes in, but it still maintains that mood and that kind of otherworldly feeling. This first movement is in what we call sonata form, where themes are set up at the beginning of the, sec uh, the, the movement called exposition. And then here's part of the middle section. It's traditional for composers to take the themes that they introduced at the beginning and then change them or develop them. It makes sense that this is a section which is called the development. And you can identify this section in most classical romantic symphonies. Usually it's in the middle, and then you hear kind of bits and pieces of themes that are tossed around in different ways. It's no different here in Bruckner's Ninth. So here's a section of it, and you'll hear that two-note motive now altered and fractured and tossed around. During the final third of the movement, that's the section in sonata form we call the recapitulation. It's actually where we get the word recap from. Typically, composers will take the themes from the first part and then bring them back roughly in the same order. So in such a massive movement as this, it's about 25 minutes long, or to put it in perspective, it's about as long as the Berg Violin Concerto that's on the first half of the program. It's sometimes helpful to know how Bruckner puts his movements together. So he takes you on these huge journeys. And unlike Mahler's symphonies, which also take you on these huge journeys, Bruckner's pieces are not really about anything. They're not programmatic pieces. They're what, what's called absolute music. So now going to the second movement, it's the scherzo movement. It's only the second time that Bruckner put the scherzo in the second place. The second symphony is actually the only other one that has the scherzo second. This is another obvious reference to the Beethoven Ninth that um, you heard the reference at the beginning of, um, of the symphony. So Bruckner's known for writing scherzos that have this enormous rhythmic drive and thrust, and this movement really is no different than that. As most of you know, the word scherzo in Italian means joke, and 
in the 1700s when Haydn was writing scherzos, you kind of got that it was a joke. By the time it got to Bruckner, about 100 years later, things kind of got lost in translation because all of Bruckner's scherzos are absolutely just deadly serious. But one thing that Bruckner doesn't change with is the basic structure of it, that it's in three large parts. The first part and the third part are pretty much identical. And then there's a contrasting middle section of it. So there's no change here. I don't need to play for you the, the sort of fast, rhythmic, driving section of it because it, it's so memorable when you hear it. But I do want to mention how he begins the movement. He begins it on an unusual chord. It's this chord. We're in the key of D minor. This chord is a chord that sort of fits within D minor, but it's a very unusual chord in D minor. If it, you, you know music, if you want to know, it's a, a C-sharp seventh diminished chord in first inversion. There, that's the technical name. So you, you can find this chord within D minor, but very revolutionary to actually begin a movement on this. And by beginning a movement like this, it gives you a sense of um, instability, that you're not really sure quite what, what's going to happen. And that's one aspect about Bruckner's music that is sometimes overlooked, and that's his adventurous harmonies and his innovations on this aspect of music. Another unusual part about this movement is the middle section of it. And here Bruckner does something he doesn't do in any of his other scherzos. You'll remember that the first, the first parts are rather fast and, and hard driven. Normally when that happens, a composer will do something different, completely different, something more uh, bucolic in the middle. Most of Bruckner's scherzos do that. The, seventh, or the Ninth Symphony doesn't do that. It still moves very fast but has this nervous energy to it that the outer sections do. So here's this middle part. movement of it, which is the, the final uh, completed one, is one of Bruckner's most unique creations. Bruckner was kind of a disciple of Wagner. He admired Wagner very much, dedicated his third symphony to Wagner, and was very much influenced in several areas, one of which was Wagner's harmonic adventurousness. Another way was using the instrument that Wagner himself developed, which is called the Wagner tuba. He was interested in having a sound in his opera in the orchestras that was kind of a mix between the French horn and the trombone. So he had these Wagner tubas, sometimes called tenor tubas, developed. Bruckner was the first composer to ever use these instruments in a symphonic format. They show up first in the Seventh Symphony, but also appear in the Eighth Symphony, and also in the Ninth Symphony. They're played by the French horn players of the orchestra, and you'll see them played uh, in this symphony, most notably in, in the third movement. 
This movement, like the first one, is about 25 minutes long. And Bruckner takes you on an extraordinary journey. And you'll remember that the first movement is based on this two-note figure. In the beginning of the third movement, you get a three-note figure, but also you get a reminiscence of the two-note figure. So here is a moment from the third movement. So I mentioned the strange uh, harmonic beginning of the second movement. In the third movement, the harmonies that Bruckner uses are about as adventurous as anything he ever did. Now, while you might not be able to tell the, the specific harmonic changes that are going on, you will be able to, to hopefully sense that the music is a bit unsettled, and that's partly due to the high amount of what we call chromaticism. While Bruckner does stay within a key, he adds a lot of notes that aren't normally associated with the key, and that, that's what gives the music a more unsettled feel. By the late 1800s, early 1900s, composers had done so much chromaticism that by the time Schoenberg started writing, he took the next step and began writing music that had no key signature, no, no tonality at all. So while this chromaticism is going on, it changes your perception of what the main key actually is. So here's a moment from the third movement where the winds play and the music is very quiet, but it's very soft and dissonant. And then all of a sudden, the strings come in with this absolutely pure A major chord, and it's a very striking moment. Bruckner actually doesn't stay in this uh, purity for very long, and here's a spot a little bit later. Bruckner builds to this absolutely ferocious climax, and the final chord of it has seven different notes in it. And as you probably know, most chords have like three or four notes in it, and considering that there's 12 available notes, Bruckner actually hits most of them on this single chord. It's a very ad adventurous thing to do. After this moment, the music is almost stunned into this silence before moving on to the next section. Towards the end of the movement, and actually towards the end of the symphony, Bruckner settles into a peaceful conclusion. 
And here, again, there's some evidence that when Bruckner knew that he was not going to live long enough to complete the symphony, that he changed the end of it. At the very end of it, the horn section very quietly quotes the opening of his seventh symphony. Here's where that comes in, and then I'll explain a little bit more about that. It's a rising figure. So why this particular piece? Well, perhaps because the Seventh Symphony was the biggest success that Bruckner had in his lifetime. And Bruckner was a composer who had way more than his shares of failures than, than most other composers. So the success of the Seventh Symphony was a, definitely a precious memory to him. But there's another reason. And this theme from the Seventh Symphony actually has its origin in his Te Deum. And you remember that he suggested that the Te Deum be a possible fourth movement to this piece. This theme can be heard in the final section of the Te Deum. Actually, it's heard very loudly and triumphantly and corresponds with the text, I will not be confounded in eternity. And the deep faith that Bruckner had gave him this assurance of his place in heaven and that he could then end his final work in this peaceful manner. So you have two works on today's program, the Berg and the, the Bruckner Ninth, both take you on these personal, heartfelt, and at times really troubled journeys. But ultimately, at the end of both of them, they find a place of calm and otherworldly acceptance and tranquility. And that's how you'll leave at the end of uh, Bruckner's Ninth on, on Bruckner's last notes that he wrote. So thank you all very much for coming. If you have any questions, you're welcome to come on up. But thank you so much for coming. Enjoy the concert.